Hello. All right. So Hebrews 11, we'll back up to um, chapter 10, verse 16 to, to see uh, how uh, 11 flows from what happened before. So a little recap, uh, I'm guessing, of what, what Randall talked about, although I didn't get to hear uh, Randall's lesson yet. We only got through verse 2. We only got through <laughs> verse 2. All right. All right. Um, all right, back to verse 3 then. Okay, uh, if we go to verse 16, uh, this is picking up on a, um, a passage from Jeremiah 31 that was earlier quoted in full length in chapter 8. So this is... This is an important verse. Um, the, the Hebrew author, he's sometimes hard to follow, but if you do stick closely with him, you see that there is um, a rhyme and reason to what he's doing. And, and so much of what we're getting in chapter 11 is building on what's come before that. So uh, this is that Jeremiah passage. So Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And he also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So when we talked about this new covenant, uh, we talked about how Jeremiah was looking forward to a covenant uh, that uh, brought greater, closer intimacy with God. This increased ability to obey. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And uh, and a greater uh, forgiveness. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So this is the expectation of covenant that uh, he has been working with, that he is preparing his readers or, or reminding his readers of. So verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So uh, as the Hebrew author has already talked about a lot, this is almost like a summary. Uh, one enters into this covenant uh, through and by and because of Jesus. Jesus is what makes all this possible. If you haven't picked that up in Hebrews, then you're not paying very close attention. Jesus is the Sunday school answer for little kids, right? Everything there's a question about Jesus is the answer. Um, how can we enter? Because we have been cleansed through his blood. Who is Jesus? He is the perfect sacrifice. But he's not only the perfect sacrifice, he's the perfect high priest who offers the sacrifice. And he is like uh, the temple curtain. Uh, he is just kind of everything. But not only that, he is also our pioneer. He shows us the way to live within this covenant. And he is the perfecter. Jesus is everything. So a covenant has two sides. The one side is uh, two parties. So both parties have their, their um, kind of agreements, the things they covenant to. God covenants to be their people, to put his law in their hearts, to write them on their minds, to remember their sins no more. And the response, the other side of the covenant, for those of us who are entering into it. Verse 23, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. God covenants with us to write his law on our minds and our hearts, to remember our sins no more, and we covenant to hold fast to this hope and to provoke one another uh, to love and good deeds. What are we supposed to be about? Love and good deeds, which might be like saying the same thing. Uh, what is love? Good deeds. It's love in action. This is our side of the covenant. 
So verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So the whole point of coming together is not so you can kind of check this thing on a checklist that God has this to-do list. You better do all these things or I'm going to be angry with you. But we come together as a community in order to help each other be faithful to this covenant, to remind each other what this hope we have is and to help each other uh, to grow and to carry out love and good deeds. If you come together and you're not helping each other be faithful to the covenant, if you come together and you're not helping each other grow towards love and good deeds, then you're missing the point. The point isn't to come together for the sake of coming together, uh, but we come together to help each other live in this community through faithfulness to the covenant. Uh, Verse 26, For if we willfully persist in sin, this is some tough stuff, so I'll read all the way down to verse 31. If we willfully, willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is some of the hardest stuff in the New Testament, I think. Uh, not, not an easy verse here. What we've, what we've seen throughout Hebrews is this comparison between what went before and what's true with Jesus. And it's always this, what went before is kind of a shadow. It's a lesser, it's still um, you know, reality, but it's not as good or as great. Uh, there's a superior kind of sense to what's come since Jesus. The old covenant was good. The new covenant is better. And so as there is a lesser and a greater, it appears uh, that sins against the lesser, if they expected punishment, sins against the old covenant, how much more so will there be punishment uh, for those who um, disregard this new covenant? All right, this is not easy stuff. Maybe some of my least favorite stuff to teach on. But, but you see this move happening here. I think maybe we keep two things in mind. Uh, to help us interpret this, and maybe uh, Randall already talked about this, but I'll... um, Okay. (laughs) I can't imagine why you didn't get to this. (laughs) I think to help us with this, because he's he's talking about life under the old covenant uh, in comparison with life under the new covenant, and he does the same thing back in chapter 3, which might help us uh, make sense of what's going on here. So chapter 3, verse 12 through 19 which we've kind of looked at before, or we have looked at before, but maybe this, this fleshes out what he's talking about here. As he has just talked about the Israelites who weren't able to enter into rest because of their hardness of heart, he tells the kind of new Israel, this church, take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. (laughs) For we, was Siri helping me out there? (laughs) For we have become partners of Christ, if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? 
But with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So what I want to, I want you to notice in this comparison is uh, Israel was not able to enter this rest, as they're being compared with us, not because they made one sin and then they're out. God covenanted with you. Guess what? You screwed up once. You're gone. Uh, but it was, as it says over and over here, this language of there was a hardening of heart or a callousness of sin. Uh, this seems to be more of a uh, kind of unrepentant or um, a continuous turning from the covenant. And this is the kind of thing that, allowed, or that led to Israel not being able to enter into that rest. So when we come back to Hebrews 10, and he's warning them about no sacrifice for sins, and you're seeing this comparison with the old covenant and the new covenant, I think something similar applies here. He's not saying, after you're baptized, you know, if you lust, if you get angry and, you know, and spew your venom on somebody, if you whatever, too bad. You know, it's only a one-time deal with forgiveness. Um, in fact, uh, some in the early church were so bothered by this that they would put off baptism till the very end uh, because they were like, well, you know, if you only get one shot at this, I want to make sure I'm not prone to sin, you know, there at the end. So you get some deathbed baptisms here, which uh, I think doesn't fit uh, the larger teaching of Hebrews because what does Israel do? They make mistakes, and they're given another chance. They make mistakes, and they're given another chance. But eventually, eventually, because of their hardness of heart and callousness, they don't get to enter into rest. So the warning here, I think, is not, you know, it's one strike and you're out, but it's a, uh, if you are not careful and you continue to harden your heart, be mindful that you might put yourself outside of the covenant. If you're outside of the covenant that earlier forgiveness of sins isn't going to apply back to those of you who are not living within the covenant. Make maybe a little bit more sense. This is still tough, but we need not, I think, sit around in fear like, or just give up, because that's what I would do. Because I haven't just sinned once after my forgiveness. I've sinned about once an hour since then. Uh, so I would be uh, in a lot of trouble. So there is a, um, in some ways I want to lessen what the, the initial um, initial reading might suggest. It's not a one strike and you're out. At the same time, though, this is very, very um, convicting. And here's maybe the convicting side of this. If we turn to verse 32, back in chapter 10. So he he has called them to be faithful, essentially, to covenant, to live as they were called to live. But here's what that looks like. And it is not... Um, an easy burden to bear, easy burden to bear. But recall those earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion for those who were in prison, and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possess something better and more lasting. Do not, therefore, abandon the confidence of yours. It brings a great reward. Part of what it seems like he's warning them against, what it means to grow callous, to have a hardened heart, is not just that you are willfully sinning, but it is your turning away from bearing the cross. It's not just active sins. It seems to be an unwillingness to bear one's cross. It's kind of like he's bringing us back, or he's um, 
reminding them of what we're familiar with with something like the Sermon on the Mount. This is what that covenant life looks like. It's going to be blessing those who persecute you. It's going to mean that sometimes people are going to take what's yours and you don't respond with violence. It's going to be characterized by something like suffering love. And so the danger for them is not uh, they might make a few extra sins, but part of the danger for them is that, that they won't continue carrying their cross. Don't become so callous that you're unwilling to carry your cross. Now the conviction comes back, right? This is, this is not fun stuff to teach on, but it seems as though there's this expectation of following Christ. Who is Christ? He is our pioneer and perfecter. What did his life look like? So often it was sacrifice and suffering love. Those of you who are in this covenant, uh, who uh, are following your king, your high priest, your perfect sacrifice, your pioneer, your perfecter, your life might look similarly if you will not grow callous. All right. I feel like I need to be able to like tag out and let Randall come in for a bit. <laughs> I, did, I, I would like to say yeah. something. If you don't mind. I, I pose this to my uh, heritage class on Wednesday night, and one of the one of the best things that was said was Hilton, who's not here today. He's going to uh, Jerry Masterson's mother's funeral in Florence, but he said you can't take any one book and then you t- and pick and choose and cherry pick and let it. Let it, mm-hmm. And that really spoke to me, because I think th- I think while this Hebrew writer sounds really really harsh, if you take this by itself, you, you just don't know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. But in the whole of Scripture, it kind of he, he's trying to scare the bejesus out of these guys. Yeah. I mean, he, earlier he said, "I want to, I want to, we need to bug the goodness out of each other," and now here he's trying to scare them. He's just saying, "Don't do this." Yeah, so he, I mean, I, I think you're right. This is why um, I, maybe some comfort and even someone like Peter who denies Jesus three times, he's still welcome back in. So I, I think we let them both speak, the Hebrew author and some of the other writers. So we don't take this, um, this view where we just totally rely on grace as this license to do whatever we want. Hebrews won't let us kind of pull the grace card. I'll do whatever I want. I'll ask for some forgiveness. Grace is my get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, but at the same time, the other authors might look at Hebrews and say, yeah, but you don't have to live in such fear. There is grace. There is forgiveness. So we walk on some sort of balance. Who do we know God to be? We know he is merciful, and we know he's gracious. But we also know he is just. And so we don't try to take advantage of him. And we learn uh, from the Israelites who went before God shows mercy, he is patient, he is gracious, but there is maybe limit, I don't know if that's the right word, but there is a point uh, where there is um, consequences for spurning that grace or that mercy. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to tell how they... In some ways, there seems like there's some things that are less severe. But here, he seems to talk about it as though it's more severe. If 
if that was true for um, what happened under the law of Moses, how much more so with what's happening now? I don't know. Yeah, there's, um, there's comfort and discomfort here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, at least it's pointing beyond um, just the present death. Although even, even when we talk about life and death, there is a sense of, as the Hebrew author tries to show, that what the, the earlier Israelites were doing was, was kind of growing in knowledge of God and intimacy with God. And so they were, when they were being cut off from that, there was a physical side, but there's also a spiritual side to that. Uh, and so as we learn from that, now it's, it's not just that we have spiritual life, but that spiritual life points to a greater and more complete intimacy with God. Uh, so I don't want to draw too hard of a distinction there, but, but maybe one of degree between spiritual and physical. Okay. Verse uh, 37. <coughs> For yet in a very little while the one who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back, but we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. So he's calling them to live by faith. This is, we're getting some of the ambiguity of language here. He's quoting Habakkuk, my righteous one will live by faith. And we're going to spend chapter 11 thinking about what faith might look like. Uh, But uh, part of at least what we're getting at in verse 39 is living by faith has to do uh, with not shrinking back. What does shrinking back look like? It means not doing those things that they were doing, uh, which which is stuff like struggling through with sufferings. Uh, being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution and how they respond to it, having compassion for those in prison. Don't shrink back from those things. Because those things represent something like what it means to live by faith. Whatever it means to live by faith, as we're going to, um, to look at, is going to be more than living with a kind of this compartmentalized belief about God. That faith is going to be something that can't be compartmentalized, but that bleeds over, not only just bleeds over, but that directs one's whole life. All right, now we'll get into chapter 11. As you get over there, I'll read you uh, Luke Timothy Johnson's summary up to this point in chapter 10 of what faith looks like. Their faith was not simply belief or even trust or obedience. So not just belief or trust or obedience. It was all of these extended through trial by endurance. What was faith? It was belief, trust, and obedience extended through trial by endurance. And this makes sense because Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, endured the cross, and they are to endure for the sake of the same education and perfection. So faith is this robust thing so far, and we're going to see that played out in chapter 11. Unfortunately, verse 1 is, is um, 
It's very well known, but it's really hard to translate. So my translation, this is the NRSV, has faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So as many translations we have in here, we might have that many different uh, readings of this. I, um, I'm going to use kind of a wordy definition of this. But we might think of that word, let's see, yours might say the substance of things hoped for, or here it's the assurance. So kind of combining some things. It's the participatory, participating assurance of things hoped for. What are the things hoped for? Well, it's things fully restored. It's this stuff that he's been talking about. It's new covenants come fully. Closer intimacy with God, full forgiveness of sins, uh, and so forth. So it's something like participating with assurance that this thing, this stuff is going to happen in its fullness. Or uh, restated uh, differently, I think my translation says conviction of things not seen. To get this, it's something like a demonstrated conviction. Of things not seen. To say of things not seen, I think, is to point back to the things hoped for. So what is faith? It's not just, as I think is going, we're going to see as we keep reading, faith is not just something that goes on in our heads, uh, but it's this conviction, it's this assurance uh, that leads us to participate in that reality, that we demonstrate that belief or that conviction with our lifestyle. So faith is maybe belief in action. And, um, and brief. Faith is belief in action. So verse 2, Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. Or yours might say our ancestors were um, distinguished or commended. Something about what the ancestors did um, shows their faith. And because of their faith, they were, maybe to borrow the language back in uh, chapter 10, they showed that they were living pleasing to God, or their lives testified to their faith. It's yet another really weird voice, it's, or really weird word. It's something like they were testified to, they were born witness to by their faith. Okay, I don't completely get what it is, but sometimes that's why we keep reading. So, if verses 1 and 2 are setting up for what's to come, what we're seeing is that faith is something like an assurance or a conviction uh, that people participate in with their life. They demonstrate in their practice. It's a conviction about what God has done and what he's going to do. And then we're going to see in chapter 11 uh, how this is demonstrated in uh, the Israelites. All right, questions so far? I know a rainy, rainy holiday, weekend morning, it's kind of hard to follow all this. Yeah? Josh, my, what's been rolling around in my mind is as you flow through the end of 10, you know, 19 and on, through 26, and to this point, at least in the NSRV, in our whatever uh-huh. version you're reading out of, the, all the pronouns are plural. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about that because everything seems communal, not individual. And we have a tendency. You know, within our own faith, to think of these things as individual, mm-hmm. my individual sins, my individual faith, 
but at least the pronouns in this version are all communal or community, and I'm curious about that. Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a both and, because he's going to kind of show us a series of individuals who live by faith. Uh, but then he calls us to spur one another to love and good deeds. So there is, yeah, I think both and works. We, we're expected as individuals to do what we're called to do, but we're all, there's also recognition that we can't do this alone. And the wider New Testament uh, vision seems to be that um, as a community, we also practice a particular culture or particular ways of life that itself bears witness to a different reality. That my own lifestyle by itself can't bear witness to the way a community culture can bear witness to. Does that maybe get where you're at? Perhaps. Yeah. This is not an individualistic faith by any means. Um, but what we do as individuals matters. Others? All right, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. So he opens up with some sort of um, recognition of creation, God creating visible from what's invisible. And I think maybe part of the point of this is he's getting us to think about um, faith in things hoped for or conviction of things not seen. If we recognize that God made what is visible from what is invisible, uh, then there is a certain um, maybe conviction that goes with that. Uh, here's how Luke Johnson says it, and I will break this down, and maybe you can see how this connects. If things that are seen always arise out of what is not seen, then the world perceptible to the senses is always not only in, dependent on but also inferior to the power that brings it into being. So if you didn't follow that, he's saying something like, if, if the invisible world gives birth to the visible world, then the ultimate reality is this uh, invisible reality, maybe? That it's God's reality is what's ultimately true? And so if we're thinking about how to align our lives, what's the wisest way to live? Do we live according to only what is seen or to the greater reality of what is not seen? Well, if what is seen is secondary to what is unseen, then the wise person, if you're following all this, lives according uh, to that reality that is unseen. Um, so, if we trust that God put things uh, into being, if God brought the world into order, then we're going to conduct our lives as though uh, God knows best how to live, or as God's... Um, let me back up. Um, man, I am struggling today. Really, the whole time I was reading chapter 11, I was just struggling with this chapter. Um, it's a great chapter. It's great. It's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating uh, chapter, to be honest with you. It's hard to even get out of the gate because of the, uh, the confusing nature of it. Um, but anyway, we live according to what is not seen. That's our ultimate reality. If their neighbors uh, around them are saying, no, that's not how the world operates, what they're saying is, we know of a truth that's beyond what you're able to see, and we're going to live according to that. Uh, verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this he received approval as righteous, God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith he still speaks. 
So Abel offered a better sacrifice, and something about that attests to his faith. So we get the sense that his faith is active. He does something. He offers a better sacrifice, but it's also perceptive. He knows something about the unseen reality. What's the unseen reality that Abel testifies to? The unseen reality is that God is deserving of our best. This is who God is, and so this is how we respond. Abel does this by faith. He recognizes who God is, and he acts upon it. So there is a demonstrated conviction. He perceives God, and he uh, operates on that perception. Verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken so that he didn't experience death, and he was not found because God had taken him, for it was attested before he was taken away that he had pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So as we fill out our understanding of faith, faith is related to pleasing God, which seems like it has something to do with one's lifestyle. And there is a content to it as well. You've got to believe God is, and that means something about the kind of God he is, and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7, by faith Noah warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning, and built an ark to save his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. So, he believed in things not seen. He saw that as the greater reality. He put his faith into action. There was a kind of participating assurance of this thing hoped for that he couldn't see. And so he did something uh, about it. And uh, by doing so, he became an heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. Um, Man, I wish he would have spent some more time explaining what he's talking about here. Um, But since we have about 10 minutes left, I'll keep moving. I'll use that as my excuse. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So, Abraham has promised something. He doesn't fully see it. And what does he do? He doesn't just believe in it and kind of sit around, but he puts that belief into action. He leaves, and he becomes uh, like a pilgrim. What's happening to uh, the Hebrew audience? They are having stuff taken from them. They are reminded that this isn't their true homeland, so they can look to someone like Abraham, uh, who was promised a rest, a homeland, a future, who didn't fully experience that, but he nonetheless lived out that uh, through this demonstrated conviction. He was convicted about the things hoped for, and he lived accordingly. What are the Hebrew audience? What are they to do? They are to trust in this new covenant that God is going to make things right, even though they don't fully experience it, even though they're in this kind of limbo in-between time, and so they are to live accordingly. What are we to do as we pay attention to the Israelites and to the Hebrew audience And now think about this ourselves. We are to trust the promise that God has made for us. We are to live out that trust uh, by not becoming too attached to things uh, that don't matter that much. And we are to put this uh, into practice through our demonstrated conviction about what really matters. As did Abraham, as did Moses, as did so many of these other people. Uh, 17 through 20. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told is through Isaac the descendant shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back by faith. 
So what did Abraham do? He didn't only, uh, um, he believed God, that uh, God was going to bring, um, bring his promise to pass through Isaac. He believed it so much that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac because apparently he believed that God could make things right. So he put his belief in action, which is what we're called to do, to put our belief in action. Um, I'll skip some of these, um, what Jacob and Joseph and others did, uh, which are just other ways of showing uh, how action taken in the present um, has this view towards a future realization. They acted uh, on the faith that God was going to respond. We get Moses in 23 through 28, whose parents, what a strange lion, saw that he was beautiful. I guess if he was ugly, maybe they wouldn't have saved him. It is... This is where I think, what is he getting at? Why these, of all the, the people and the, the things he could have picked, sometimes I just don't know the choice. I don't understand the choices that the author makes here. It's, it's very frustrating. It, it definitely creates a certain humility that maybe I'm missing something. There is, there is a uh, clue or key to unlock some ideas here that I simply don't have, uh, which, which definitely led me to struggle with this. Uh, but his parents, uh, they definitely put their faith into action uh, by hiding things from the king. I don't know what it had to do with Moses being beautiful. Um, Moses, Moses puts his faith in action uh, by leaving. Um, does he put his faith in action by leaving? Maybe he was driven out. Maybe he was afraid he was going to get killed. Uh, whatever Moses does, um, he eventually shows his faith. But if you know Moses' story, when God first approaches him at the uh, burning bush and says, I'm going to choose you, Moses responds, um, who am I? And God says, I'm going to work through you. And Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. And Moses says, uh, but I'm not a good speaker. And he says, okay, you can use your brother-in-law. And then my favorite one is Moses says, can't you just send someone else? And God says, no. So whatever it is about Moses's faith, it's not this immediate. It's, it's, there is a a chance to grow into this, which Moses does. And this is so much of the this language throughout Hebrews is that we are growing in this. We are on this path to perfection. Moses is an exemplar of faith, and yet he didn't start out there. Uh, he had a lot of growing to do. Um, all right, we get Rahab and some of the judges. Rahab's this great example of faith. She sees what God has done. I know what God did for you in Egypt, she tells the spies. She sees kind of ahead what God is going to do. I know what God did. I know he's going to give this city to you. So she looks at God's past actions. She anticipates God's future actions, and she conducts herself accordingly, right? Sometimes if you know what God has done and what he's going to do, well, you might follow the lead of this prostitute and say, well, I better align myself according to what God has done and what he's going to do. So we humble ourselves and follow Rahab's lead, seeing God's past actions, anticipating his future actions, and living accordingly. And then he goes through this long list of people uh, that it's unclear exactly who he's talking about with some of these things, rescued from the mouth of lions. Maybe that's Samson. Maybe that's Daniel. Maybe that's David. Um, the reference to being sawn in two is unclear. Uh, and I think one of the things he's picking up on... Is that Barack Obama in there? Barack, yes. Um, <laughs> One of the things he's picking up on, I think, is some of their recent history. Um, in Second Maccabees, a uh, hundred 
ish years before uh, before Jesus, uh, there was this rebellion, and well, I'll read here chapter six and Second Maccabees, where a group of Jews decided to um, to not forsake their covenant, and they were uh, tortured and killed because of it. So here is, for instance, Eleazar. A certain Eleazar, one of the leading scribes, elderly in age and with the most dignified outward appearance, was being compelled to open his mouth and eat pork. But preferring death with honor to life with religious defilement, he proceeded voluntarily to the torture instrument, spitting out the meat. In this he showed how everyone ought to stand fast and reject what isn't lawful to taste, despite the intense desire to live. But those in charge of the unlawful sacrifice, because they had known the man for so long, took him aside in private and urged him to bring meat that was lawful, prepared beforehand by himself, and then pretend to eat it. By doing this, he might escape. But uh, he said, if I skip a little bit, it's not worthy of our old age to act out such a role. Otherwise, many of the young would assume wrongly that Eliezer, the 90-year-old, had changed to a foreign way of life. If I acted this charade for the sake of living a moment longer, I would mislead them, and I would be defiled and dishonored in my old age. Even if I escaped the punishment of human beings for the moment, I would certainly not escape the hands of the Almighty, whether alive or dead. So I give up my life courageously now to show myself worthy of my old age and to leave a fine example for the young people of how to die a good death with eagerness and dignity for the revered and sacred laws. After he spoke, he immediately approached the torture instrument. Those who had shown goodwill toward him earlier now felt hostility toward him because the words he had spoken seemed insane to them. When his life was about to end from the beating, he groaned, It is clear to the Lord with his sacred knowledge that although I could have been saved from death, I endure in my body harsh pain from this beating. Yet in my soul I cheerfully suffer these things because I respect him. In this manner he died, and his own death left behind a most noble and memorable example of virtue, not only for the youth, but also for the majority of this nation. This is pre-Christ. This is a willing, suffering to live out one's faithfulness. And to kind of take us back to where we started, if this is what people were willing to do prior to Christ, what the Hebrew author is saying, shouldn't you be willing to do so much more given what Christ has done? If the faithfulness of the Israelites who had only gotten a glimpse of the promise led them to these kind of actions, how much more should you who have gotten so much more of a vision, who have known more about what Jesus has done, should live in faithfulness, should follow the author and perfecter on this path um, of suffering love. So two things in closing. Here's how N.T. Wright words it, because he words things so well. Their faith shines all the more brightly when we realize that they carried on throughout their lives without seeing the story come to its proper conclusion. They didn't, in fact, receive the promise because it only came true in Jesus the Messiah, and in the community that formed around him. As we look back at the great crowd of witnesses who went through so much, while looking forward to the reality which we now enjoy, are we not rebuked for sitting so lightly on our privileges and doing so little to show that we are the community in whom what they were hoping for is finally coming true? So maybe I didn't like chapter 11, not only because it's difficult, but because it kicks my butt, (laughs) if I'm being completely honest. I was really touched by this prayer last night. If y'all have never seen this, uh, John Bailey's Diary of, Pri- Diary of Private Prayer. This is a beautiful thing. He's got a prayer for every day of the month, prayer for the morning and evening. So I will um, end with this prayer, and then if Randall has any uh, last words. 
Let's pray. O unapproachable light, how can I fold these guilty hands before thee? How can I pray to thee with lips that have spoken false and churlish words? A heart hardened with vindictive passions, an unruly tongue, a fretful disposition, an unwillingness to bear the burdens of others, an undue willingness to let others bear my burdens, high professions joined to low attainments, fine words hiding shabby thoughts, a friendly face masking a cold heart, many neglected opportunities and many uncultivated talents, much love and beauty unappreciated and many blessings unacknowledged. All these I confess to thee, O God. I thank thee, O loving Father, that holy and transcendent as thou art, thou hast through all the ages shown thyself to be accessible to the prayers of erring mortals such as I. And especially I praise thy name, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, thou hast opened up a new and living way into thy presence, making thy mercy free to all who have nothing else to plead. Let me now find peace of heart by fleeing from myself and taking refuge in thee. Let despair over my miserable sins give place to joy and thine adorable goodness. Let depression of mind make way for renewed zeal and for the spirit of service. So let me go ahead thinking not of myself and my own affairs, or of my own hopes and fears, or even of my own sins in thy sight, but of others who need thy help, and of the work that I can do for their sakes in the vineyard of thy world. Amen. Randall, any closing thoughts? All right. Thank you all. Chapter 12 um, next week.